This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. How are you? I'm good, good. What do you know this morning that's uh, a little bit wet outside? Well, we are going to go to where it's even wetter and colder. Where We're can that head be? North to Alaska. Oh, gee. So this, I like this story, Zeb, because this is told by a guy by the name of Charles McKenzie. So this is his first-person account, and I like this because I feel like it's more accurate than maybe an author. So it's from a diary or something? Yeah, from a journal that this guy wrote uh, about his experiences. No, in the Klondike. So he's a gold digger. He is. He is. So, you know, when everybody headed north to Alaska for the Klondike gold, a lot of them had never heard of an old Indian warning that said, quote, (laughs) beware when the wind blows and a haze hangs over Chilkut. Okay, now that'll that'll come into play here in a minute. Okay, a haze. Beware when the wind blows and a haze hangs over the Chilkut. Okay, oh. so here he is. He says in 1897, I had never heard of the snow-covered mountains of Chilkut, nor of this old Indian warning. All right. The solitude, of, he was a sheep herder. He said the solitude of sheep herding that had seemed so satisfying two years ago had kind of gone sour on me. I, I would think that's normal to get tired uh, of herding sheep. I can imagine, sheep. yeah. So he says, I wanted new scenes, new experiences, but I didn't know where to find them. My feet were always itching to move on. And so in my 28 years of life, I pushed westward halfway across the continent. So this guy was born in Buchanan County in 1870. He says, I'd moved with my parents to Gallatin County, County, Montana, in 1880. He said, we'd farmed and raised cattle there until 1888, and then we took another hitch westward, and we landed in Lane County of Western Oregon near, near Eugene. Okay. He said, I worked with my father on the farm there until 1896. So he hung in there for, you know, 16 years or so. Mm-hmm. Then he says, you know, I got restless. I looked westward once more, and now only 80 miles away lay the rugged Pacific Ocean. Oh, boy. So here's where things get a little interesting. He said, I heard a fellow found gold on the Klondike River in the Yukon Territory. Right. He says, others across the nation were hearing another sound, the sound of a big stampede. Mm -hmm. So, the big stampede of 1897. So, he says, men and women, fired by dreams of untold wealth, rushed by crowded boatloads towards the Klondike and the treasure hidden there. Hardly had the thunder of their passing died before tales concerning them came flooding back. Tales of fabulous strikes, of nests of nuggets big as hen's eggs, of poppers becoming rich overnight. And, you know, we've, to- we've talked about that. There's some that, that really did make it big, but the majority did not. They, well, it was hard, hard work, and a lot of them never 
never got anything. You, I'm going to interrupt you right there and ask you a question. I remember that on one of the programs talking about the strikes and the plots of where they're mining is and everything, you were going to tell us about how those plots were figured and if they said, well, this is my area, how did they discern how much of an area? It had to be registered. And they had to have, in each, like in this case, they had to register it with a, a government official that would have been over there at Dawson. I see. So they would have had a, I guess, a legal description, so to speak. I see. So many feet this way, so many feet that way. Uh. So, But anyway, he says, uh, also, other stories drifted back to tales of disaster, tales of the untamed north, and these stories were discounted or cast aside because only the golden tales counted, and those, and getting north as fast as one could. So, you know, they did hear some bad stories, but that, ah, no, that won't happen to me. I'm good. I'm, I'll be tough. Did this guy go by himself? Well, up to a point. Right now, he's just going to get there, okay? Okay. So he says, I came back to Eugene in the fall of 97 and made preparations for departure by late February of 98. I was ready. I had a little over $1,000 in my pocket, and I was crazy to be off. He says, I went to Portland but had to wait there until I could get a boat to Juneau. At last, I booked passage on a ship called the George W. Elder. He paid $35 for his ticket to get to Alaska. Mm-hmm. So... The, then the George W. Elder was on her way, and I was headed towards the land of gold. But nature stepped in right away, which it often does. We only got as far as Astoria, Oregon, a distance of 105 miles, then found out that it was too stormy to cross the bar. We lay overnight in Astoria. Now, I've read stories about the bar, where the Columbia comes out. Uh, oh, okay. Out into the ocean. Oh, okay. And that can get very treacherous. I really mean, there's ships that there. cannot make it through there. Sometimes. Really? So, anyway, he says it was. Is, is the water a low level? Oh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the bar is just uh, from the sand coming out and uh, making a sand bar that is a little bit shallow but huge waves, I guess. Oh, I I've see. I've never actually seen it, but I that's see. what I've read about. Okay. He said we had a rough voyage, but it didn't scare as much. Uh, the boat was loaded to capacity. City, and we were all potential millionaires. Uh-huh. You can imagine yeah. the excitement. Yep. He said, we, had Ju- we made Juno in about a week's time. I bought flour, bacon, beans, evaporated potatoes, rice, coffee, sugar, dried fruit, lots of tobacco, salt, and a few simple medicines. Then I bought a tent, a Yukon stove, blankets, tools, clothes, and I bought myself a Yukon sled. What's a Yukon stove? That's the next step. It was, oh, a Yukon stove. I'm not sure exactly what the Yukon stove is, but I, I'm thinking it's a metal stove that they just put uh, wood inside. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, right. Now, the, the sled, that's what I thought he was going to ask. Uh, the sled was actually 7 feet long and 16 inches wide. And so they would just pile all their stuff on How this. How do you pull it? Well, just with a rope. Oh, it'd be, to me, I picture it being like a toboggan. I see. You know, so I, I assume that's what it would look like. But anyway, he said I had an outfit of around 1,600 pounds. The next step was to decide where I was to land in Alaska. There were two places possible. There were two trails and uh, to take that would eventually lead to the chain of rivers and lakes that was the route to Dawson. Now, Dawson was where everybody wanted to get to mm-hmm. uh, to do the mining. 
So there were two settlements. There was Dye and Skagway. And Dye was an Indian village before the gold rush, and Skagway also was an Indian village before the gold rush. He says, I decided to take the Chilkoot Trail from Dye. And we've talked about the Chilkoot Trail, the Golden Staircase. Is that the one where they chiseled uh, yeah. in the snow? Yep, I the, the Golden Staircase. And there were lines. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He says, I caught a small Alaskan steamer for Dye. This little boat was overloaded with men and supplies. A big, huge storm rode on us, uh, came down on us. The rain lashed and froze on everything it touched. And that night, our boat was covered with ice. Now, right there, Zeb, I'd be turning around. You, well, you know, and I've seen that show. Um, what's the name of that TV show? My goodness, my mind went blank. Where they're out uh, fishing, uh, deep sea fishing, and they have to really keep the oh, yeah. ice off the boat because yeah. down they go. Well, Dye was this town he got to. It sat on a long, sloping beach. Uh, the beach was, beach was about a mile long. He said, we scrambled ashore. Our goods would be floated in during the night because they had to put the boat out away from shore. Yeah. They didn't have a dock to come into. He said, I remember uh, I found a bed in a hotel and rolled into it. I remembered my outfit waiting to be claimed, and I lost no time in getting dressed. I hurried towards the beach. And it was the last of March now, and the temperature hung just above the freezing mark. Oh. Dye was a only a huddle of raw shacks, saloons, gambling houses, a hotel, boarding houses, and tents. Thousands milled around Dye. They crowded the saloons and the restaurants. And he now picture this on the beach. A great mountain of stuff was piled on the beach. A fellow read out our names and checked us off as we claimed our goods. He says, I moved my outfit up the beach away, then went to find a driver and a team and a sled to take me up to sheep camp, which was the next step in my journey. So he said, I waited three days in Dye. I studied maps and learned all I could about the treacherous chain of lakes and rivers that I would have to travel. I mean, he's just getting started. This is just the very beginning. He absolutely didn't know anything. He didn't know a lot. So he learned as he went, I guess. Hmm. Anyway, he says, seeing the mountains of goods piled around lots of times with nothing but markings to protect them worried me at first. And then he said, what about all these outfits stacked in the open? I asked a big fellow with the friendly dark eyes, and uh, I said they'd be a big temptation to anyone with itching fingers, wouldn't they? Well, this big man said, uh, quote, I don't think anyone will be anxious to steal from the other fellow, not when they hear what we did to a thief last week. And that was? We caught him. <laughs> we stripped him of every supply he had, even his pocket knife. Then we sent him down the trail. We passed along the word of what he'd done, and you may be sure that no one is going to take pity on him. Up here, he says, we figure a thief is the same as a murderer. A man's outfit is his lifeline, and robbed of that, he'll die. So Whoa. you didn't. You didn't do that. <laughs> so that guy maybe didn't make it. He may not have. Yeah. You know? So you mentioned about being on his own. He said, I teamed up with a guy by the name of Billy Hardwick from Nebraska. So you got really, I think you got two rookies here uh, heading From out. Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now this sheep camp that he was going to lay 12 miles or so up the canyon from Dye. And sheep camp was a beehive of activity when we arrived. Teams were working up from Dye. Hundreds of camps were crowded together, and goods were piled sky high. Men and a scattering of women, bent under heavy loads, staggered up the mountain to the summit. Three miles above Sheep Camp, far up on that dizzy summit, was Chilkoot Pass, the gateway to the Klondike. 
Yeah. And that's the one I've talked about that the you, you Canadians... You showed me a picture of it. Yeah, the Canadian government was up on top, and you were supposed to have 2,000 pounds of gear uh, before they would let you into Canada and on your way down to the Klondike. How does somebody pull 2,000 pounds of gear on a sled? Well, they don't. I mean, uh, you've got to take it... Just pack at a time. Oh, uh, up, up my. The, so. so you're going to leave it, then go back and get right, more. exactly. So he starts out. He says, I built my pack up to 200 pounds. Wow. Then I strapped the pack on my back and started out. There were thousands ahead of me on the trail. It was just above freezing, but the sun was blazing down. I had on a hooded Mackinac, but it hadn't gone far before I had to throw it back. I was sweating before I'd gone a half a mile. Two miles from sheep camp, the timber stopped, and I came out above the timber line at what they called Stone House. Now, Stone House wasn't a house at all. It was a huge house-shaped rock, and it was covered with snow. So here he is with these thousands of people packing stuff. So Now, he says some teams sledded up as far as Stone House at an extra high fee. So the people that brought him up to Dye or sheep camp, sometimes they'd uh, hire them to take him a little farther up. I see. So, but he didn't. Uh, from there on, clear to the summit, it was a backpacking job. The trail really got rugged from Stonehouse on. I divided my pack here and restrapped a 100-pound sack on my shoulders. So he left his gear there. Yeah. Well, now, he, he was partnered up with this uh, Billy Hardwick by now. So a lot of times they would have one guy go up, come back, and then the other guy would go up and come back. So they would, you know, again, they... And, and how far was the distance? It's about three miles at this point uh, to get up to, to the Golden Staircase. Packing a 200-pound pack. Yeah, and, but he, he, he reduced it down to a 100-pound sack. Still, you know. Wow. So he says, as I went along, I noticed outfits stacked along the trail with for sale signs on them. My shoulder straps cut my back and breathing became more difficult. A half mile beyond Stonehouse, a fellow had a tar paper shack. He had a restaurant here and sold good meals. The shack was about 10 by 12 feet. If anyone lugged a good-sized piece of wood up the mountain to him, he got his dinner for free. So here's a restaurant, okay? Oh, my goodness. Now, a little beyond the restaurant was another place of business. It was a snow dugout or a cave. A man served water or lemonade here. Both drinks were the same price, 15 cents each. Uh, lemonade in Alaska <laughs> with snow and ice doesn't sound yeah, good Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. But uh, keep in mind, Zeb, the, uh, there's snow and ice all over, so sometimes even just getting water could be a challenge. So anyway, it says a few feet from the snow uh, house were the scales, okay? A tar paper shack housed them. Indians and others carried packs up the steps to the summit. They charged two cents a pound and weighed in at the scales before the big climb. So these were the entrepreneurs that were carrying the stuff up, but they had to weigh it so they could charge the guy, you know, whatever they were going to charge him. So the big climb, this is, this is the hard one. He says, I stared upward for a 1,000 feet, feet, and there was a stairway of ice-carved steps all the way. Gee. These were the steps Indians had carved them in in the dim pass to get up to the summit of Chilkoot and on the pass. Now, I always thought, I didn't, anyway, a white man had, char- had charge of them now. 
So I thought the white man is the one that made the steps, but actually the Indians had done this. But he took it over. Uh, he had a huge rope hung down the side of the steps from the summit. It was anchored at the bottom with stakes driven into the ground. A great heap of rocks held the stakes down. The rope was fully an inch thick at the bottom and was used exactly as a stair rail. Thousands of hands pulling on the rope had worn it as thin as a man's finger at the top. It was anchored here, too, with stakes and rocks. The steps were about one and a half feet wide. So picture this this rope that is so thick at the bottom. By the time they get to the top, it's it's worn out down to just the size of a guy's and finger. The thing that just surprises me is the steps were only what? A foot and a half wide. That's not very wide. It's not. I mean, if you were a little uneasy on your feet. Well, yeah. <laughs> what did they do if they had somebody coming back down? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> and that was a different <laughs> Okay. That was a different method, Zeb. Oh. <laughs> and we'll get to that. So here picture this. A money box was at the bottom of the steps. He said we dropped ten cents or fifteen cents in for the keeper every time we made a trip to the summit. He kept busy at them all day long with a shovel and a broom. So he kept the snow off off the steps. He says, I took my place in line, grabbing the rope with one hand. I started up those icy stairs. When I finally came to a resting place, I stopped to get my breath. A resting place was a pair of twin side steps, just large enough to hold a man in his pack. So just a small space on each side to get out of line you to rest. You sit down or anything. I don't know if there was a place to sit or just, you know, stand. I don't know. The, the problem with that is you might wait an, uh, an hour before you could get back in line again. Oh, my. So, anyway, he says the summit was rough. The pass was a gap at the summit. Through this pass on the other side of the mountain lay Canadian territory. And this is where I said the Canadian Mounties were up there to make sure you had enough gear. He says the fellow packed his entire outfit to his cache on the summit. He then slid them down the Canadian side, a sled load at a time. About a 1,000 feet below the summit, he hit frozen round lake. This lake was the first of the chain of lakes and rivers on his route to Dawson and the Klondike. So just getting to the top was just the beginning of the, of the, of the trek. And he, he said, I was watching a fellow riding a canvas down the slide behind his loaded sled. A mountain of good was piled at the lake's edge. His sled got away from him, and I saw it plow into that pile of goods. <laughs> so he had a sled, but he couldn't stop it until he hit all those. Wow. Anyway, so he said, I made two trips a day from sheep camp to the summit. I, I, I just still can't imagine. He said, and that I, was 1,000 feet? Up the summit, yeah. Up the but summit. it was about three miles from sheep camp uh, to the top. He says, I saw things take place at the steps during that time that were hard to believe. I saw a medium-sized Indian pack a 200-pound barrel of pitch up the steps. Now, he says a barrel or anything round was the hardest of all loads to carry. They wouldn't fit to a fellow's back. I found that out when I packed my Yukon stove up the steps. This ended... Indian did it again and again. How did he carry it? Just in front of him? Let me show you a picture. Oh my goodness sakes. Look at that picture. He's on his back. On his back. He's got that and he's got a strap going over his forehead to hold that barrel in place. 
Again, I can't imagine. And he did this over and over, but probably actually made a lot of money. When he bought a shirt, he had to buy like a 97-inch shirt. (laughs) Yeah. He says, another big fellow from Eugene packed for hire all the time. He said, I've seen him pack four 100-pound sacks of flour up at one time. Four. That's 400 pounds. I, I can't hardly imagine that but he said the but the most amazing of all was the, what he calls the crazy german that's what i called him in my mind impatient to reach the summit and refusing to take his turn in line on the steps he clawed his way up the rough ice beside the steps none of us believe he'd make it but he did <laughs> anyway he says i learned a quick way to get down the side of the chilka here here's what you were asking a slide ran parallel with the steps after I'd slid down once, I found out that the seat of a man's pants can feel mighty thin. I used a canvas to ride down on after that. Oh. So they had just like a, oh. a long slide next to the steps. Yeah. So he says, a little over a week's hard packing, and I had my outfit all cashed on the summit. Well, he said uh, he ended up going back down to help his partner, and he said the wind was blowing. <clears throat> He said it was snowing heavy, and about 11 o'clock, a man came plunging down the trail, yelling, snow slide. A lot are caught in it. Help. So he says, I grabbed one shovel, Billy another, and we joined the hundreds streaming up the trail. So here's these people trapped on the, on the steps in a snow slide on, on the golden staircase. He said, I'd been digging about half an hour when my shovel slipped down suddenly. I brought it up full of snow and saw a hole underneath. Now, underneath the shovel fool showed me that I'd struck a hollow in the snow. Underneath the vault-like hollow was a body, Mm. the body of a man lying in a sleeping bag. The hollow was caused by the warmth of his body melting the snow. Oh, my But he was dead. He was dead. He was dead. Others were finding victims, too, and he said, we just kept working. Then we found him, the sole survivor. You ready for this? (laughs) The sole survivor, we uncovered an ox. An ox? An ox. We found him chewing away at the baled hay that had saved his life. Those piled up bales had made a little margin of safety. I stared at the chewing animal, hardly believing my eyes. In the week or more that I'd been packing up the trail, I hadn't even heard of an ox. So that was the sole, uh, not the sole uh, survivor. Anyway, he said victims were being uncovered. The guide rope aided the searchers in their task. They had only to locate the the rope, dig down, and uncover another victim. He said, I had no idea that a doctor was going into Dawson with us until I found him busy at the slide. His name was Dr. Cleveland. He gave first aid to anyone brought up alive. Um, he said all the survivors were in bad shape. I don't know how many of them died. The dead were taken to sheep camp. A tent was set up as a morgue, and the stiffened bodies were placed in at least 53 dead people. Oh, my. Then came the task of trying to identify those faces. We're down to 30 seconds. Okay. So Dr. Cleveland helped identify them. There was one woman that was found buried upright, and she was still alive. She she was straight up and down. He said, we dug for three days and were finally satisfied there was no one else. He says, I got my sledding outfit through the pass and at this point headed on to the climax. Let's let's have more on that next week. That's an interesting story. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but there's so many questions to ask about the human toughness that they had to have. My goodness.